Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. Our guest today is Patience Marie Mabal, founder and CEO of Women of the World Endowment, a brilliant idea whose time is long overdue. But I'll leave it to Patience to share more about that in a moment. Patience has over 20 years of experience in the global financial markets, and with a JD and MBA to her credit, she's been at the forefront of the gender lens investing movement before it was a hashtag. For so many reasons, not least how happy I am that this idea that was once just a sparkle in her eye just a few years ago is now being realized, I am delighted to welcome you to the Reconstruction Patients. Thank you so much for inviting me, Monique. It is such a pleasure to be having this conversation with you. So for our listeners who don't yet know, can you tell us what exactly is the Women of the World Endowment all about? And how did this idea come to you? And what does the Fall of Lehman Brothers have to do with it? <laughs> so Women of the World Endowment is um, an $5 billion endowment ambition that we're building, uh, focused on investing at this intersection of gender and today's most pressing environmental and social challenges. Our mission is to create resilient and sustainable investment systems by engaging women fully in financial markets and as change makers for today's most pressing challenges. Uh, We're doing so by catalyzing capital markets, by investing in and through women as drivers of sustainable communities. And um, the Genesis story actually goes back to the summer of 1993, uh, when I was in my first year of law school and I went to work at a legal clinic in Durban, South Africa. Uh, I was going to be a human rights lawyer. I wanted to, um, uh, I, I was there uh, uh, representing um, the people of South Africa, the black people of South Africa in some of their legal cases. Um, and I was you know, sitting there in different rooms with them, telling them that they had you know, access, they had um, rights to jobs, they had, you know, a right to shelter, they had rights to, you know, food. And and then I realized that without actually economic inclusion, without jobs, they didn't have any of those rights. They couldn't access any of those rights. And so I realized that uh, what I needed to do was to figure out how to work at the intersection of access to rights, so in the same in the sense of legal rights, and access to economic inclusion uh, or economic rights. Um, so I came back from that summer and decided to take the GMAT and apply to business school as well. And so that's how I ended up graduating with a JD MBA because I knew that um, I would be happiest working at that intersection. I had the fortune to then um, uh, get a job with the International Finance Corporation where, you know, every single transaction was interrogated for both IRR, the internal rate of return, but also ERR, the economic rate of return. We looked at what our investments would produce in terms of um, financial returns, but also we looked at, you know, the impact on communities. 
And this was the perfect intersection for me. And so in those early years, I worked on building power plants around the world. And then later on in my career at the IFC, investing in financial institutions. But then you mentioned the fall of Lehman Brothers. And uh, so we're going to fast forward to 2008 when Christine Lagarde said, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, um, things would have been different. I thought that was a really bold statement for her to make and started interrogating what exactly would have been different. Um, during that crisis, I started doing a lot of reading and noted a number of things. Uh, companies that had gender diverse C-suites uh, and boards were faring better. Their earnings were more stable. Their stock prices also more stable. They were also emerging from the crisis that much quicker than their peers. Um, so it seemed to me that there was truth to the fact that if Lehman Brothers had been Lima sisters, or at least Lehman Brothers and sisters, the world might have been um, different. Uh, women uh, at the table uh, were part of the building of risk, risk mitigation infrastructure and companies, and thereby more, sus more sustained um, upside performance. And so coming out of you know, that realization, I decided to build for the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, the banking and women business. Uh, and this was a business that we built focused on investing in uh, women entrepreneurs, women-led companies, women-founded companies around the world. Uh, that business for IFC is now uh, a $3 billion business. We issued the first ever gender bonds on the Uridashi market, built the first ever uh, debt fund focused on investing in women around the world um, in, in um, partnership with Goldman Sachs, and that was a $600 million debt fund. Uh, and evidence from that showed that, once again, that was a better performing portfolio. And so for me, the data was there. And um, we uh, needed to keep doing more of this, uh, but it just wasn't being done. And when I took early retirement and continued to invest um, in gender diverse teams for my own account, I started getting frustrated at the fact that the bigger market, the institutional pools of capital, were not seeing this opportunity the way I was seeing it. And in some ways that out of that frustration, and out of that clear view of the opportunity, I decided to develop the Women of the World Endowment. So in part, Women of the World Endowment was born out of some of your own personal frustrations towards that all too common phenomenon that we have data, we have evidence, yet we don't pursue that direction. And when we think about some of what else happens here is not just that we don't pursue even when the data is in front of us, we also potentially fight it, not we, you and me, but society and the systems. And there's, if there's some progress that we do see, often it is encountered with friction. It's encountered with attack. It's any progress towards justice is often um, sees a retrenchment, two steps forward, four steps back in some instances. Um, so when we think about the opportunity of investing in women and what you have done already, you know, can you share a little bit more about some of those two steps forward, one steps back that you've seen in your own work and potentially how that has informed some of the strategy that you have here? Yeah. So uh, so coming out of the, as I said, um, the 2008 financial crisis, we had 
this emerging data, right? That companies fared better. Yet in 2015, 2016, trying to raise a fund focused on, you know, a thesis that said, we want to take advantage of this opportunity that is female. We still couldn't raise that capital. And so, um, and, and you fast forward to even today, you know, you have $70 trillion of capital invested on any given day. Uh, here's what we know. Only 1.3 to about 4% of that is managed by women or people of color. Despite what we know, that they're better stewards of capital, that, you know, you get sustained growth um, uh, and sustained profitability, uh, you still have such a piddly number of assets managed by women or people of color. And so if you think about that, so you can even make a pie chart out of, you know, 1.3% of $70 trillion, right? I mean, it, it just looks like a chart with like a single color, right? Um, but try and hold that visual, however you can figure that visual, hold that visual in your head. And then I'm going to challenge you to introduce another visual. And this is the visual of the fact that coming out of 2020, we all have seen things we cannot unsee, right? So we have uh, on, on, on average, the, the, the global average of nursing staff that's female, of, of uh, nursing staff that's female is 76%. So of the people who created this wall between us and the pandemic, 76% uh, of that wall was female, right? Um, that, you know, those women uh, who are, you know, that part, part of that wall are making 62 cents on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. So yesterday was a pay equity day. So let's, let's think about that. So they're not, we're managing only 1.3 to 3, 4% of capital. And then even when we are the walls that protect the world from, you know, disasters like the pandemic, it's 76% of that wall, we still make 62 cents on the dollar to our male counterparts. And then think even more, I'm gonna, here's another visual. Now we want to go back to normalcy. Um, we have teaching staff who held our households together during the pandemic, teaching our kids through trying times. And then now that we want to go back to normalcy, we want our schools to open. Well, on, the global average is that 66% uh, of teaching staff are female, right? So they are a key part of going back to normalcy. They were a key part of keeping us safe. They're a key part of going back to normalcy. Uh, yet of the teaching staff, um, female staff make 87 cents on the dollar on average um, compared to their male counterparts. So we can't even give them that capital to manage. And so our, our theory of change at Women of the World Endowment is that how can we change systems? How can we, and change them fast enough that when that sort of reversion to, you know, back to cultural norms that is not progressive, when that happens, we have changed certain things um, in such a way that it will be harder to revert, right? So think about, so here's, here's my um, imagination uh, that we're trying to fuel with our capital. What if 
we actually gave the oversight of education budgets or oversight of healthcare budgets to the people who are the frontline folks. What if 76% of healthcare budgets were, were actually uh, allocated through the sensibility of 76% of their staff, which happens to be female. Similarly, you know, what if 66% of education budgets were controlled and allocated by people who are the frontline people um, doing the work of teaching our families? Now, that kind of thinking is what we fuel with our capital. It's what we want to invest into. Um, women as drivers of change, women who are doing the frontline work, being given access to capital and access to allocating capital in a way that actually brings about real change because they're the ones who are doing the work every day. They are the ones who know the things that work. Why don't we give them the power to actually direct the, the, uh, the capital that fuels uh, those um, areas of our communities and our um, and our world. Listen to communities. Listen to the people most proximate. That is what we are starting to see green shoots of in the impact investing industry, but it's not necessarily common practice. And I so appreciate that about the ethos and the you know the reason for being that you have with women of the world. And when we think about it's, these are choices that you are making. These are choices that society and systems have made in the, how we have currently allocated. But I do think that there's something so unique about you and your life path, because this idea could have come to many, but it did not. It came to you. So what happened in your life? What did you experience that um, really positioned you so uniquely in my estimation, but I might be biased, <laughs> to have you lead this work? Yeah. So. Um... Uh, so I was born in Zimbabwe, and um, uh, that's a country for, for most, for people who may not know, there's a country in Southern Africa. Uh, and <laughs> I was born into um, a family of one boy and three girls, um, and, but I was born, more importantly, into a family uh, where my mother was one of seven, three girls and four boys, and uh, my grandfather actually believed in educating her girls equally to educate. And this, this is, I mean, this is Zimbabwe in the 1940s, 50s. So this is, um, this was a big thing. But the other thing is my grandfather, when I, when he would, he would watch me as this gregarious young person and, and, you know, preteen and teenager, he would say things like, you should have been born first. He recognized the leadership in me. Uh, and you'd say, you should have. So there was this permission to imagine, to, you know, to look forward, to embrace um, my, you know, um, my gregariousness. And I think that was the beginning of, of just um, having confidence in in my own um, capacity to think, my own capacity to take those thoughts and act them out. Um, so for a girl from Zimbabwe, I, I've had the fortune of having lived in Europe. I've had the fortune of having worked in an environment like the IFC where 
uh, I, I worked in, I've worked on every continent, uh, in the world, uh, or, you know, done business, uh, on every continent in the world and visited many countries and being in, in rooms where I was the only person of color and where, you know, even though I was sometimes the senior most person, uh, in the room, you know, people turned to look at somebody else for, you know, the most important thing, uh, or to direct their comments, to somebody else, but at the same time, I was in rooms with very senior people uh, from around the world and learned to, to take my seat and, and take it with incredible confidence. Because, you know, that memory of, of being uh, allowed to be who I am from a young age really carried through. Um, I walked into every room with with this clear sense of whoever wasn't willing to listen to me, it was their loss because I had a lot to say and and I had um, important things to say. It wasn't just about a lot to say, but important things to say. And so I also was incredibly fortunate that I had mentors who believed in me. I remember my first director, my first boss at the International Finance Corporation, he would invite me into meetings with global CEOs. And then after the meetings, he'd, he'd ask me to chat with him about what were the key things that we'd listened to. He was, he was teaching me how to be in those rooms, how to take away the important things, and then how to action them. Um, I've also been you know, fortunate you know, to have uh, people like you know, Ruth Shaver, whom uh, some of you may may know, who is an incredible uh, thought leader, but also a person who's using her world in the most incredible way to give back. I I have the opportunity to have people like that around me, right? And so, um, at the end of the day, it is it's it is a collection of a lot of experiences, um, but then it is also noticing certain things in so many different parts of the world. So I know that in Africa, for instance, smallholder farmers who feed communities, uh, more than 50% of those smallholder farmers are female. Yet, you know, the world chooses not to see that. The world chooses not to give them access to capital. Or, or in some countries, actually, the rights to own land. So there might be the smallholder farmers who are feeding communities and feeding families, but they don't have the right to own land. Um, my own mother, for instance, uh, she was divorced from my, from my father when I was four, wanted to buy a home, had to get her brother to co-sign for her, even though she had a better job than her brother, uh, made more money than her brother. Um, so there, there are these uh, misalignments, these dislocations that discount the capacity and the capability and the opportunity and the potential in humans uh, that doesn't um, quite, you know, um, make sense. And it provides this th these visuals in my imagination that are dislocated. And so, you know, I think having had the opportunity to sit inside rooms to witness realities in different uh, countries and different economies uh, to also clearly understand the power of women um, and my own power. Uh, all of it has led to a place where, you know, I understand uh, very much that, um, you know, 
we have an opportunity to do things differently as a world. And that opportunity can be uh, taken advantage of while centralizing female power. It's been an amazing life journey. And I can see that these experiences have so shaped you and these active choices that you've made with the strategy for the Women of the World Endowment. And so can you share a little bit about, you know, in a tactical sense, how do you and your team approach portfolio construction differently with this ethos and um, intention in mind? And what does success look like for, for you all? And how has the pandemic changed things since this did not begin just last week? Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear uh, what has shifted. Yeah. So, so um, at the, the, with the work that we do, we are investing across the capital spectrum. And this was intentional. I wanted to invest, I wanted to create an endowment that can invest in early stage companies equally in public market equities, right? Um, and so we, we, that flexibility gives us an opportunity to be, you know, sector agnostic, vehicle agnostic, instrument of investment agnostic, but to be thesis focused. Our thesis is women as drivers of change. And that informs the ethos of our um, portfolio construction. So we are comfortable with embracing the complexity of you know, interrogating every single dollar that we invest to deliver at least three levels of impact. So the first is, you know, are we generating risk-adjusted returns comparable to any other market strategy? Because if we're going to invite others to invest with the same lens, we're going to have to show them that you can make money. But at the same time, we're interrogating every single dollar for the deep impact on women's lives and the communities that those women are empowering every single day, right? So that's the first layer of impact that we're going for. The second thing that we do for every dollar that we invest, we try to invite others to come and invest alongside us. So our embracing of complexity means that others don't have to, because others don't have the same sensibilities that we do. They don't have the imperative that we do, but we are, you know, we're embracing that complexity on their behalf and then inviting them to multiply every single dollar that we are investing. Uh, and then finally, with the income generated from our investments, we are investing that into systems orchestrators. So it's the first mile of uh, nonprofit entities that are doing the deep thinking around how to remove friction out of the plumbing of systemic change, right? So at the end of the day, when we invest in things that work with our for-profit return-seeking capital, um, we are at the same time noticing what is the friction in the system that may make it so that these same investments might not scale or might not uh, be able to generate the impact returns that we're looking for. And then we're taking those things and looking for entities that are doing the good work of creating strategies and tools and, and ways of removing that friction from the system. This way, we, we are then you know, building the tools and strategies that allow us to accelerate the cycle of you know, financial returns and impact returns and the scale of financial returns and impact returns. And so our grant making 
feeds our theory of change at the top as well. So is this uh, virtuous cycle of capital, which is supported by virtuous cycle of impact generation at the same time. And so, um, you know, we do all of this work through uh, collaborating with others. We prototype with others. We invite others into the room to co-create solutions with us. Um, so our portfolio, for instance, um, uh, in, that, in that investment process, we're looking at three things. One, we're screening out for things that we don't care about. So here's a bit long list of things we don't care about. Fossil, fossil fuels, companies that involved in deforestation, military weapons, civilian firearms, the prison industrial complex, uh, tobacco, they have, of course, to be, they have to be gender positive. And now we're actually interrogating our investments for companies that are doing the right thing by diversity and inclusion. And so, and for us, people would say that's just a screen. It is a screen, but we are embracing the complexity of actually understanding those screens. So for instance, I sit on the advisory committee of the prison industrial complex uh, tool that is managed by, as you saw, that allows investors to screen out companies invested, um, companies that are doing work in the private prison industrial complex. And so we actually do the work of understanding what's behind the screens. So it's not just, you know, a screen. Um, and then the next thing is we interrogate our investment opportunities for, are they providing inclusive access? So is this investment or is this company doing the work of providing inclusive access? you know, access for all. But even more than that, the third question that we ask, and we hope that our portfolio over time is gonna skew more towards that last part, is, is this investment going to provide inclusive opportunity? So inclusive access is, is good, but inclusive opportunity is even better. Because that is when we get to a place where we're investing for what we've called the full potential paradigm. When everybody, Everybody, whatever you look like, whatever your gender, whatever your race, uh, whatever your origin, can have this potential of realizing um, their place and their purpose and for, for capital to be involved in the process of fueling you know, their work, right? Um, and their life's mission. And that's, that's kind of um, what our... Uh, investment process looks like. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, we know that 2020 was incredibly challenging. Uh, 2020 was more challenging for women. Women um, uh, got laid off, and those who didn't get laid off were trying to make, you know, homemaking, childcare, uh, work, and, the, and their day to day jobs, all of that work. Uh, work well. And, and so we have um, the fact that for Blacks and Hispanics, uh, the jobless rates increased to almost 10%, yet for whites and others, uh, that rate hovers around 5%. And so we've got, we've got this um, opportunity, I see it as an opportunity to uh, invest in dismantling the infrastructure of our divisions, right? Um, what, what this shows us when, when one set of people 
get to experience almost a 10% job loss rate and others get to experience half of that, it means we have these, this incredible um, systems and infrastructure divisions that we need to dismantle. And so our investments have to be both investment that dismantle that horrible infrastructure while at the same time investing and fueling into the opportunity. And the opportunity is, is really, um, you know, climate change, it's education access, it's healthcare access, um, it's um, racial justice, it's all the things that we all, you know, can name. Uh, our strategy is that we want to put women at the center of, of those um, solutions because we, we believe that women will lead to having, you know, having that sensibility will lead to sustained change. That when the time comes, when the world begins to forget what we just went through, what we're still going through, and that regression to the norm happens, we've put in the infrastructure in place. We've put in the plumbing uh, in the systems that's going to make it that much harder to revert. Is the world ready? Is the world ready? I believe it is. I believe it is ready. Um, I think, you know, for the longest time, we're talking about, you know, show me the data, right? Um, because, you know, people had not seen the things that we got to see in 2020. I think that maybe when I started Women of the World in Dominion in 2018, you know, I was still working on, let me let me make sure that we have the data, we can show people the data, we can, et cetera, et cetera. And then 2020 happened and nobody can say that, well, I don't know that because I, I haven't seen it. Um, our work is now to, you know, to make sure that the world does not unsee that and see what we all saw in 2020, right? And see those walls of female nurses that we all applauded as they walked out of hospitals at the end of their work shift. Um, let's not unsee that. Uh, let's not unsee the fact that as teachers go, as uh, our schools open, it's women, it's female teachers at the forefront. Let's not unsee that the countries that have fed best through this pandemic are women-led. Let's not, and so, you know, we all have seen certain things that we cannot, the opportunity is, is, is making sure the world does not unsee it. And so I get, I, I think we're at a place where we, people used to say, show me the data. We're now at a place where people are saying, I want to do it. I just, give me the strategy, give me the tools, show me how, right? And this is the work we now have to do. It's better than, where's the data? I don't know what you're talking about. It's okay, I'm here now, but, you know, and, and, and that, um, you know, request for show me, give me the strategy, give me the pathways could be taken as an excuse. You know, some people are saying, I don't know the strategy, I don't know the tools, I don't know the pathways, as it may be an excuse to not do what needs to be done, but, it, but at least they're no longer saying, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And so I think we have an opportunity here that we must harness and do so very, very quickly. And as much as we're investing um, in for-profit 
opportunities. Be as equally intentional about investing in the dismantling of the infrastructure of our divisions in their uh, friction that causes inertia in the acceleration of change. And, and some of that is done with philanthropic capital. Let's reimagine you know, the capital, um, institutional capital rooms, but let's also reimagine institutional uh, philanthropic capital and how it is investing in making sure that those pathways are cleared of all the inertia and the stupidity of show me the data uh, or whatever it is that, whatever excuses that people have. No more excuses. No more excuses. And we must focus on the how, as um, I heard recently. And for those people who are just entering this journey towards justice, I say, welcome to the work. You're absolutely right. And so we are so grateful for leaders like you who are showing us the way, who have models to point to um, and strategies to share. And how do we amplify? That's, that's what hopefully this podcast is about. We are here to lift that up and give people the how. And so when you think about uh, in your own walk and journey around the world, as you said before, your finger is on the pulse you know, of so many things and thinkers and leaders like yourself. Who else should the rest of us be paying attention to, whether contemporary figure or historical, as we seek guidance for other models, for other domains, from other disciplines to usher in this next normal that we are talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are too many people um, who are, you know, doing a lot of really, really fantastic work. I mean, I, men I mentioned Ruth Sheba, who is an integrated capital model, uh, which essentially does the this full cycle of interrogation and investing. There's Rachel uh, Rubashioti of Adesina, who is um, so... Uh, invested in interrogating and, and including voices from the stakeholder community. Bayer Robinson, who's building, you know, the infrastructure for uh, venture investing through people of color, women and men of color. And then you've got, you know, leaders like Adena Friedman at NASDAQ, who sits in a place where she has a visual of data, right? And she knows what the data is saying. Data is saying gender diverse teams, uh, diverse teams, you know, um, gender diverse teams and racial diverse teams are also, you know, um, make a big difference. And then, you know, I'm working with this young lady, uh, Olivia Knight, uh, who is doing this work of, you know, um, after the passing of um, Mr. Floyd last summer, uh, you know, the killing of Mr. Floyd last summer, uh, all kinds of institutions, corporates came out with pronouncements about how they're going to do things differently. You know, I had a conversation with my two sons, who used to be two black boys, who are now growing into two black men in America. And I said to them, you know, the worst thing about it is that all these corporations can come out with all these statements because they know that no one will hold them to account. Um, they, do, you know, they can, you know, they will do it for PR and no one will hold them to account. And so I, I urged my boys to at least do the project of, you know, collecting all these statements and then thinking later on about what to do with it. But it turned out that there's this young lady, Olivia Knight, who had been thinking of the same thing. So she's doing um, a research 
project that is actually developing a tool and actually the tool is already up on the as you saw site that looks at the Russell 1000 and they've already done the S&P 500 uh, across 18 KPIs that are diversity and inclusion KPIs. I'm actually, I support her, I work on our advisory committee um, and it is looking at how uh, corporates have made commitments to do better internally, to do better in communities where they operate um, and to disclose data. And, you know, she's collecting all this data and we've put these KPIs together and it's scoring companies against their peers. And this is, this is the work that in my opinion, um, you know, goes to that plumbing that I'm talking about, right? If, you, if, if we want these companies to do the right thing, we have to create these tools that enables the rest of the world to, to have visibility about what it is that they're doing against the promises that they've made, right? This is the, this is the uh, investing in tools and strategies that I, I referenced. It'll be very hard for those corporations to go back, right? Because there's this tool that's giving us all visibility into what's going on internally. And so I'm happy to say that one of my sons is actually working for Olivia, which is fantastic. Um, he started, you know, one, he has a job, but two, he has a really, really incredible job that's giving him a sense of worth. Um, we have uh, here at Women of the World Endowment, three interns who are from MIT who are working with us to figure out the intersection and the nexus between gender and ESG, right? The E in environment, you know, the E in ESG and the S in, in ESG. What is, how are women central to the investments, but also the impact that's being driven by those, by those investments. And so we, you know, that's, you know, Megan, Emma and Sumia, you know, these students. And then, you know, globally, you look at, um, Greta, of course, and in the spirit of Greta, you now have uh, young women like Sharma Shandoya, who's a 24-year-old uh, um, marine scientist from uh, Mauritius, who's working to save uh, the world's seagrass. It turns out seagrass is one of the best, uh, you know, um, ways that you know carbon can can be captured, uh, and yet the world is losing about 70% of it each year. So she's bringing attention to this work. Um, I mean, I could just go on, but I think, let me end with this, uh, on this question. For me to, I've, I've named a few people, but um, I probably shouldn't have, because remember, what we want at Women of the World Endowment is whatever it is that women are doing, young women, older women, to solve today's pressing problems. We want to be part of the capital that fuels the efforts. And if the world believes that um, everyone is potential and we want to fuel that potential, then you know I could name too many young people, right? Uh, I just chose to name you know these few, but really the opportunity is in every one of us. And so um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, you can you can have conversations with some of the young ladies that I've named or 
or we can all just realize for, that for every Olivia out there, for every Shama out there, for every Greta out there, there's so many more who are driving change at very local levels that are unsung. Um, and when the world recognizes that there is so much potential and what is needed and what is missing is the capital to fuel their ambitions, I think things will be will be different. I love that sentiment. And I love what you said that we cannot unsee. We cannot unhear either. So thank you for that recognition and honoring of all of the talent because um, the two words that resonate with me, what you said is accountability and opportunity. And as we think about beyond those two words, what are some of the other attributes and maybe just one that we must have if we were really going to share your ethos more holistically with the world? You know, what do the rest of us have to do? What is a characteristic that we have to have? Yeah. We, I think we all have to have the characteristic of recognizing potential in everyone, right? Um, one. And then what we do with that, so there's, there's the, the human action of recognizing the potential in everyone but it's what we do with that that actually even matters more right and my view because i live in in a world where i think that the marrying of potential and capital is really critical to driving solutions in my view if we could have um a world where those allocating capital can be from diverse journeys, life journeys, I think we will solve for so much more than we're solving for today, right? Because, you know, capital allocation goes to the things that you know. And if we have only white men sitting in investment rooms, uh, on investment committees, directing where capital goes, well, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be you know, gnashing our teeth at the reality of what happens. They are doing what is natural to them. They are allocating the capital into the opportunities that they see. And their worldview is informed by, you know, the, the, the journeys they've traveled. Now, if we could just recognize potential in people and then take that and put them in the rooms making decisions, and for me, it's the, the um, rooms of capital allocation. The world would look so much different than it looks today. Our challenges would actually get to a place where we might retire some challenges rather than just keep talking about them as they get worse. As many a wise person has said before me, talent is evenly distributed. It's opportunity that is not. So in a moment of reflection, as we close. Um, what do we need to do now in order to be good ancestors? This imagery came to me from a book that I read called Emergent Strategy by Adrian Mary Brown, and, and it just so captivated me. So I ask it to all of my guests. Yeah. Um, I think that um, we sit in the reality of our ancestors, and to your point, and you know, that reality is informed by, you know, their imaginations, 
and their imaginations were informed by their context. Well, I think after 2020, uh, we all have a common context. I mean, for the first time, the world, I think, can honestly say that we have a common context. No matter where you live, no matter where you sit, no matter um, what religion you are, etc. Here's what we know. We have the, we have a common context that speaks to um, racial divisions that are massive, that result in all kinds of other, you know, negative knock-on effects. That's that's on the negative side. We have um, climate change impacts that's out of control, whether it's floods or fires or um, uh, grasshoppers in East Africa. I mean, you name it, right? We have all of these challenges. But on the other side, we also have this visual of what happens when people collaborate. So, you know, we had a pandemic that became, you know, very real for, the, for most of the world in 2020. But we also had, for the first time, scientists who came together and in such a short period of time came up with, you know, um, a vaccine. But it, it, it required collective action. It required working across people who may have disliked each other, who may, you know, um, have thought of each other as competitors, who may, it required collaboration. So we have a visual of challenges. We have a visual of what happens when we, you know, come together to solve those challenges. I mean, seriously, we have to say that these two visuals allow us to sit in collective gratitude, right? We now all know what can happen. We now, you know, when, when we don't look after each other, we now all know what can happen when we actually work together, right? Um, and so paying it forward for me is for this generation, for, these, for those of us who have lived through this, to not forget it, to then harness it and create uh, a more inclusive and more collaborative and more um, um, a more inclusive tank for solving all of these big challenges because these big challenges don't get to to um, you can't build walls you can't build walls around yourself uh, they they will impact us all and and so um, so no more excuses. Uh, about racism, no more excuses, sexism, for, 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 for perpetuating violence, for um, a, a financial infrastructure that leaves other people out and intentionally so, they're just no more excuses. And I think if we, if we all embrace, you know, no more excuses, gratitude, and the need to pay it forward, we shall be better ancestors. And the people going to come after us will be that much better for it. So powerful. Let us never forget. Let us not forget. And what can we expect from Women of the World Endowment in the near future? Yeah. So in, in this in this moment, we are working on a number of things. One is to change the narrative of women as beneficiaries into a narrative of women as drivers of solutions. I think it is so critical because it will inform so many other things. Women are not waiting to be saved. 
um, women are saving, they're holding up ceilings in homes and roofs in homes, they're holding up skies on, across continents. We need to recognize that. And our work is to change the narrative. Um, so that's one of the things we're gonna do. We are looking to continue to raise capital into our corpus and to do so much more with that, with this 100% intentionality around driving change through women. We want to demonstrate that, um, and we've been demonstrating that you can, you can invest for value in a value-based way, uh, in a way that's informed by values. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if we can multiply the amount of collaborators around us, the amount of co-investors around us, the amount of you know, entities that are embracing strategies, tools, and investing the same way as we are, then um, that will be an incredibly successful 2021 for us uh, and beyond. I hope and wish you every success in that because we need to change the narrative on so many levels for many things, not least those intractable problems that you just called out where we have no more excuse. So it has been my distinct pleasure to be in conversation with you today, Patience. You can find out more about Patience and the Women of the World Endowment at wowendowment.org. Thank you so much, Monique. It's been such a pleasure to uh, be in conversation with you. And I'm gonna end with uh, a challenge for you. Um, uh, your, your what if challenge. So what is the world that we, that you see that you live today? What, how would it be different if women were central to what you're imagining as the solutions needed for this world and where the world could be? So that's my challenge for you. What if? I take it on. Thank you for that. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. <clears throat> we have benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. And we'd love to share your favorite quote or mantra with us that we can share with the world, with full credit, of course. And if you have ideas for future guests, please reach out. Our email address is tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the-reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us. Impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Our quote today is shared from Patience. And it is by the matchless Maya Angelou. I think a hero is any person really intent on making this a better place for all people. And if I may be so bold as to add anything to that, may we all be heroes like patience. <laughs>